Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Tesla automobiles, they do not burn fossil fuel. Tesla, the company, burns a lot of cash. Here to tell us more about the company is Gordon Johnson, Managing Director, Alternative Energy, Metals, Mining, and Equipment Analyst for Vertical Group. Gordon Johnson, always a pleasure. You were listening into the call yesterday. Why don't you share with our listeners what you heard and what you took away from it? Yeah, I mean, so what we heard on the call, um, um, surprisingly, I think not just to us, but many, was a very defensive um, uh, management team from Tesla, specifically Elon Musk. And, you know, historically, they've been very open to taking questions, and it seems like very important questions with respect to surprisingly low um, April Model 3 deliveries. Um, What's going on with the deposits on the Model 3, given uh, the cars have been delayed significantly? Um, uh, Questions around these items were essentially deemed boring, Um, and they turned it over to a a YouTube blogger uh, who says he owns 54 shares. Um, So when you're shunning uh, analysts from the institutions that you are heavily relying on uh, and heavily rely on to, to to do your business, it's it's very concerning, and you know it's reminiscent to us of, you know, in the second quarter of 2001 when Jeff Skilling um, called an analyst on our earnings call um, when the stock was at 55, and by the end of the year it was at nine dollars. Not we're not saying Tesla is Enron, but we are saying that this is a, a, a definite shift in tone uh, from from management at, uh, at Tesla. So, Gordon, given given that shift, why aren't the shares of Tesla down more? They're down more than 6%, yes, but still somewhat elevated if you really think that uh, that this is about to collapse. Yeah, I mean, it's because you have uh, literally this is this is not a, uh, you know, an analysis type of stock or a fundamentals-based stock. It's a, literally a faith-based stock. It's almost a religion. Um, and I think that a lot of the holders know, if you look in the proxy statement of Tesla, you'll see that Elon Musk has pledged 13 million shares of stock for different debts that the company has. So we don't know exactly what the key levers are to uh, call that, you know, the, the to, to essentially when that stock will be called. But, you know, if this stock drops to a certain level, it's going to accelerate down as, you know, the debt holders um, essentially force Elon Musk to sell stock to, to cover those debts. Okay, so let's talk about the debt holders and the uh, capital raise that Elon Musk says that he doesn't need to do. Uh, he said that they're going to stop burning cash later this year and, and start turning a profit. Um, how much credibility is there at this point with those pledges? And is it true that you think that he won't need to raise capital again in the next, uh, I don't know, nine months? Listen, let's face the facts, right? They burnt over a billion dollars in free cash. Their cash balance dropped by nearly a billion dollars in a quarter. This is the third largest cash burn, free cash flow cash burn in any, any single quarter. I want to be clear here. Elon Musk is saying that he is not and will not raise equity. He has said that before. 
if you go back to 2015, he said the company will never need to raise equity again. Since then, I think they've done it six to seven times. Uh, we think they will need to raise equity. And let me be more specific. We think they're going to do it this quarter, which means over the next two months. Is it going to be equity? I'm sorry. We think they need to raise capital. Is it going to be equity? Is it going to be debt? We don't know. Uh, but we do think they need to raise capital if they're going to hit their uh, uh, you know, production plans. Um, and that's where we stand, and that's what our analysis suggests. And we stand by that. This quarter affirms that, not, 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 not pushes us further away from that. Gordon, uh, what are some of the specific issues that, uh, that Tesla has to deal with in order to, let's say, get this Model 3 out the door and onto, uh, onto the road? Yeah, so if you look at Electrek, which is very well respected, they're saying the Gigafactory is only 30% complete. Um, if you look at some of the teardowns that respected um, auto analysts have done, and these, these aren't sell-side analysts or you know, financial analysts, these are, these are engineers. Uh, they said that the Model 3 has been built very, um, uh, I don't want to use the word poorly, but certain items and certain key steps have been skipped. So think about this, uh, Tim, right? You have, Tesla said that you had 4,300 Model 3s, over 4,300 Model 3s that had been produced in the first half of April. Um, and they said there were 2,000 Model 3s in transit. So that's roughly 6,000 Model 3s. Yet, uh, Inside EVs is saying they only delivered 3850. So, and then if you use the Bloomberg numbers, they track the VIN numbers for the Model 3s, there was 10,000 produced in April. So it looks like there's thousands of Model 3s sitting out there that either are in transit uh, to be delivered, which it doesn't take long to deliver these cars. That's one option. Or, or you know, they have issues, i.e., they've been poorly uh, constructed and they're still waiting to be finalized, so they're not really produced. Um, or they're just sitting in inventory. Um, uh, either three of those scenarios is scary. So to your question, what needs to be done? Uh, it seems like quite a bit needs to be done, and we need to get more color on these production numbers that they're putting out there because the deliveries numbers from inside EVs, and keep in mind, this, this is a third-party um, uh, analytical company, but you know, very well respected and very spot on so far over the years with respect to Tesla deliveries on a monthly basis. Uh, they don't match up with Tesla's production numbers. So uh, what do they need to do? Probably spend a lot more CapEx to get their production facilities up to snuff. Um, and that's clearly not what the company's indicating. They actually cut their CapEx numbers. Well, if they don't have the, uh, the capital to expend. Uh, Gordon Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Gordon Johnson is Managing Director, Alternative Energy, Metals, Mining, and equipment analyst at Vertical Group in New York. Uh, some strong words that the call yesterday that Elon Musk held with investors reminded him of to the 2001 Enron call and that Tesla would have to raise capital within the next few months in order to keep going. We will keep an eye on the shares, uh, which are down about 6.5% right now. Bermuda is an economy that depends heavily on tourism from the United States, as well as its as its, uh, as, as its well-known uh, profile of being a destination for businesses. Here to talk about the uh, nation is the Honorable David Burt. 
premier of the government of Bermuda. He is the youngest ever. Uh, he joins us now. He is 38 years old. You went to George Washington University uh, and graduated with a uh, business uh, degree. And so I want to talk with you. You've been in the uh, position for about nine months now. S&P just upgraded uh, the outlook to, uh, for Bermuda to a uh, positive outlook. What do you see as the main challenge going forward in the near term for Bermuda? Uh, well, good morning uh, to you, Lisa, and good morning uh, to Pim, and good morning to your listening audience. I mean, the challenge for Bermuda is to translate what we've done well uh, for so long into a new uh, future and what uh, that world will look like. So Bermuda has always been a center of innovation. And the reason for our success um, in the insurance space is that we were able to uh, bring together the regulators, the lawmakers, and the uh, business sector to figure out regulation that was smart and that could work and that could allow um, industries to grow. And so from that perspective, our challenge is to translate that into uh, new areas of the economy and our, or the global economy. So whether or not that's dealing um, in the space of digital assets or whether that's dealing in the space of how we're going to look to play a role in what the uh, global economy will be, that's what Bermuda and that's how Bermuda is trying to position itself. Speak if you can about the actual structure of Bermuda. It is a British overseas territory. Yes. What does that mean in terms of its governance, its laws, and its relationship with the United Kingdom? Uh, Bermuda as a um, overseas territory, we have the most advanced constitution out of all the United Kingdom overseas territories, and it's a constitution of which we're actually celebrating our 50th anniversary. Happy uh, birthday. <laughs> thank you very much this year, actually this month, uh, uh, to be precise. But uh, what uh, our relation is that we have full internal self-government, so we make all of our own laws and we set all of our own procedures, and the United Kingdom is responsible for um, internal security, um, external affairs, and defense. Okay. Uh, I'm wondering, you were talking about how insurance companies and other businesses have gravitated to uh, the territory. I want to talk about a new UK law that will go into effect, I believe, uh, in 2020 that will force uh, different companies to disclose where they file their taxes. I might be butchering this, but basically people are concerned uh, that this will give less of a benefit to certain corporations who mm -hmm. file in Bermuda. What's your take on this? And can you please you know, give, give a more detailed... <laughs> Outline than, than what I just tried to do. No problem, Lisa. I'll be I'll, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, let me uh, start by saying that uh, in from the Bermuda perspective, we make our own laws, and so for the first time in the fifty years that we've seen an internal squabble, which is taking place in the United Kingdom, get to a point where there was an amendment that was passed to a bill where the the Parliament uh, seems to think that it can uh, pass laws for people that don't have representation inside their Parliament. So that is a completely separate issue, and that's something that um, I think um, is unfortunate. But in from the Bermuda perspective, we do not recognize the right of the United Kingdom to set um, our laws because we have full internal self-government and the only thing the United Kingdom actually has responsibility for is external affairs, internal security, and defense. However, uh, because I don't want to conflate the issues, what they had spoken about was an issue of having a public register of beneficial owners of companies, which is not the global standard of which exists. Bermuda has, uh, unlike many countries, for over 70 years had a central register of beneficial ownership. So we know all the persons who own the companies that 
are registered in Bermuda. And what we also have is that we are we are compliant with the international standards, which is set by the OECD, of making sure that we exchange that information um, with uh, authorities um, around the world who are looking to get that. So Bermuda has uh, has led the charge. We are one of the leaders um, in international tax transparency and compliance. So we are the first overseas territory to have an agreement with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs in the UK and the first overseas territory to have an agreement with the U.S. Um, Internal Revenue Service here um, in, uh, in in the United States. So we um, have led the space in this charge, but Bermuda is not a tax play. Bermuda is a regulatory play as well. And so what you will see for the insurance companies, a lot of the insurance companies that are actually in Bermuda um, have taken a hate to get too technical, a 953 election on their um, tax return. So they actually file taxes as a U.S. taxpayer, but they're in Bermuda because we have a unique regulatory environment. Uh, that allows us to that allows them to deal with one regulator to access insurance markets in the United States as opposed to the 50 different regulators that are in all of these states here in the U.S. I wish we had more time because the one question I want to ask you has to do with same-sex marriage. I don't know. Can you do that in 20 seconds? Mm-hmm. What's the status? Um, I'm perfectly happy to discuss that. Uh, Bermuda, uh, we uh, we are the first UK overseas, uh, Caribbean UK overseas territory to give full legal recognition to uh, same-sex couples. It is something that did not exist in Bermuda before our government passed it. And uh, we are welcoming to all persons on, on our shores. Uh, we are proud of the record of which we have. Uh, if you want to say five years ago, uh, there was nothing but now we recognize um, all same-sex couples. Thank you very much for being with us. The uh, Premier of Bermuda, David Burt, thank you very much, and uh, happy birthday and congratulations on the Constitution, the 50th uh, anniversary. Absolutely, thank you. the Constitution of Bermuda. Much appreciated. Amazon just has to hint that it is thinking of getting into an industry to scare shareholders away from all potential competitors in that sector. Here to talk about the uh, skirmish that happened yesterday in the payments sector is Dave Ritter, payments and specialty finance analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Bloomberg News reported that Amazon said that it was more aggressively getting into uh, payments processing to compete with the likes of PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, Square. There was a fierce reaction. Tell us, what is Amazon exactly thinking of doing? Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is a topic that I've written about actually going back many months, the possibility that uh, they might decide to sharply cut their rates to incent merchants to accept their Amazon Pay service. So, I mean, just think about it between, what are they, 200 million Prime users now? So that's 200 million stored payment credentials plus non-Prime users have their payment credentials stored there. But the challenge has been, you know, Amazon's been trying to crack this market for many years, and the difficulty uh, that they have is, number one, obviously they sell merchandise themselves, so they're competing against merchants. And, you know, ever since PayPal split away from eBay, uh, their growth has accelerated because that concern that merchants had by doing business with PayPal has gone away. So. I mean, I, I think the reaction is, is overdone. I mean, I feel PayPal's been beating back all competitors, and its growth has been accelerating in recent years, if anything. 
David, can you explain uh, the sort of the the finances behind doing this? Let's say that uh, someone listening is a uh, a producer of a product and they wish to sell it through Amazon. How much does it cost for Amazon to take care of the transaction? Yeah, Amazon. You know, they don't publish their specific costs, but you can assume just like any other very large merchant like Walmart or Target, for example. They are getting favorable rates from the credit card processors to process credit and debit card transactions on their site. So they do have that advantage. Um, but right now, the way it works is, you know, they're going to charge a merchant, say, a 3% rate to process a transaction, just like PayPal does. But then, you know, they have to turn around. They're, they're basically acting as the merchant in that case. So they have to turn around and pay the cost back through the payment card network to take that transaction. So, um, so they're not making the full margin on it. And that's where PayPal differs in one key respect is that a lot of folks keep a balance in their PayPal account. So you use that balance to pay or you use your linked checking account to pay there's little or no cost in that transaction to PayPal. They're making that full margin from the merchant uh, rate that they're charging. Okay, well, that goes that dovetails perfectly into another Amazon initiative. People have talked about, speculated, frankly, that Amazon will try to get into the customer deposits business, perhaps mm. to uh, compete more directly with PayPal on this matter. Do you think that they can make inroads uh, in, in to that effect? Yeah, I mean, what's really surprising is how important trust is in this business. Um, PayPal consistently ranks right up there with major banks in terms of trust in holding their money and handling their money, which is not something you'd necessarily think would be the case. But when you've been at it, you know, for 20 years like they have, it sounds silly to say that's an old company, but in the tech world it is. Um, you know, they, they had that built-in advantage. I'm not sure that Amazon, uh, people think of it the same way. They think of it as a you know, neat place to buy stuff. And, you know, Amazon's pretty successfully provided a lot of financial services very well through third parties. You know, they have a, a card with Synchrony, and they have a card with Chase that pays a big 5% rebate that's real popular. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. And, and there's plenty of ways to add cash into your Amazon account. You know, you just go, you just go buy a uh, prepaid card and load that money in. And, um, you know, they offer a debit rewards program now too. So I kind of feel like they're already doing a lot of these things. Dave, what's been the response of Visa and MasterCard? Are they going to go the PayPal route? Uh, in terms of, well, you know, Visa and MasterCard have their own, um, call them alternative pay buttons that they've been trying to push in recent years, and uh, none of them have really gotten any traction. And you can also throw Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and these other alternatives into the mix. Um, at least in the U.S., they've really struggled to gain gain traction, whereas, you know, PayPal's got coming up on 20 million global merchants that yeah. accept it as payment. It's really pretty astounding. Amazon, of course, has 100 million Prime members, though, and I want to just home in quickly on the trust issue. Are mm -hmm. you implying that consumers don't trust Amazon? No, I'm not implying they don't trust Amazon, but it's, it's one thing if you're looking to expand further into financial services and holding people's money, I think you're crossing into a little bit different area than 
look, I know I'm paying for something and I'm using my, my credit card, but that credit card is from Chase, and they're the ones providing the the actual relationship behind that. All right, well, I'll leave it there, but thanks very much uh, for sharing this information with us. Very interesting, and, and Lisa, as you describe it, the Amazon effect, uh, all I have to do is sort of mention that they're going to be getting into some particular industry and the stocks uh, of the competitors all react. Yeah, although it's interesting because when I listen to Dave uh, Ritter, it, it reali- I realize that perhaps this offers up some opportunities to people who are still bullish on specific companies if they think that the uh, if the effect is overdone. Right, indeed. And taking a look at the shares of uh, PayPal, for example, uh, they are down about 1% uh, right now after falling uh, more than 4% in yesterday's uh, trading. Thanks very much to uh, Dave Ritter, our senior analyst for payments financial technology and specialty finance for Bloomberg Intelligence. The world of advertising changes as technology and consumers change their taste, but some things don't change, and that's the emphasis on creativity. John Seifert is the worldwide chairman and the chief executive of Ogilvy & Mather. He joins us now, Ogilvy & Mather, one of the many uh, companies under the overall corporate banner of WPP Group. John, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Much appreciated. Could you just give people a little sort of maybe a, a 30 second history of Ogilvy and Mather? Because they may not recall that they came up with the Dove uh, soap commercial. That was kind of that was one of the hallmarks of your uh, agency. But the, the history goes back to 1850. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing history. Um I remember it really in the context of 1948. That's when David Ogilvy started Ogilvy and Mather in uh, New York. We'll celebrate our 70th anniversary this coming September. And, uh, you know, I'm the ninth chairman and CEO of the company. I'll be the last one to have been mentored by all the previous eight, including David. So it's a founder brand that I have huge passion and heart for. In terms of background, we've, uh, David had a list of the clients that he wanted to work for. And uh, he pretty much ticked off everybody on that list. He wanted to work for the Campbell Soup Company. He wanted to work for Lever Brothers. Dove has been a valued client of ours for uh, right from the beginning. American Express. American Express, which is a, a client that I've worked with uh, for the last 30 years. You know, David uh, was told that American Express was too small uh, by his president at the time. And David ignored that advice and said, no, I think, they're, I think these people will uh, do something special. And they certainly did. So there have been a lot of changes uh, just in the way that people absorb media in the past two decades. I'm wondering, uh, just in the past few years, what do you view as the biggest change for you and your business as far as distributing the message of a brand? Well, we call this the era, era of great fragmentation. There have been never been more ways to reach people than ever before. Obviously, the digital res- revolution has ushered in all sorts of new ways to engage consumers. And one of the the paradoxes of all that choice is that many of our clients are are less confident in what works. And so we're in an era right now where there's lots of experimentation, lots of new ways to build brands through digital engagement, through new, new media sources, through personalization, through the big data and how that can be applied to customizing products just to the particular need of a given customer. But at the same time, many clients are saying, what's, how does it all work together? How much should I pay for it? And what's the real value that I'm going to get at the end of the day? And so it's never been more complicated to help clients navigate 
this this new era. In navigating this new era, you must also recognize that what appears on the internet is in no way verifiable anymore. I mean, we, we have entered the age in which we really do not know what is behind much of the information and the advertising that we see. We don't know who pays for it. We don't know why we see it, all of these things. Do you then have to reinvigorate the what we believe and how we behave ethos of Ogilvy? In fact, I think it's uh, that is the only antidote we have for what some might call this lack of transparency in terms of, of, of how things show up. Uh, you have to believe from where they come. Uh, so brand ownership and brand trust never been more vital. And look at the social platforms now, right? You know, these are companies that were deemed the companies of the future, the ones that we could all believe in because they were ushering in this new level of engagement and, and uh, openness. And yet it's never been harder to kind of be confident that what they represent, uh, you can count on, you can believe in. And so it's, it, is an, it is an aspect of the paradox we live in. So as you speak, I just keep hearing Facebook, Facebook, Facebook <laughs> over and over again in my head. I'm just wondering, have you seen any shift in your clients away from Facebook in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica issues? So one of my clients told me that they were at uh, the University of Alabama and they asked a graduating class. So in the light of all of these uh, issues with Facebook, are you, you, know, are you uh, coming off Facebook and not using it? Not a single hand went up. And so I think one of the things that uh, we're going to face is, is this fundamentally going to change consumer behavior? And, and I think the jury is still out on that. I mean, right now, these platforms are so ingrained in people's lives that even if flawed, it's hard to give them up. Uh, so I think we're going we're gonna to see a much greater emphasis on verifi verifying and, and being accountable for both the content and the advertising that appears in these platforms before we see massive exodus of, of, of consumers. Do you believe that we're going to see a simplification in the advertising business? I think if we don't, we're going to have real problems. Uh, the, it is far too complicated. And, and I think one of the things that you're going to find, whether you're talking at a holding company level or in the marketing departments of clients and so on, is that we have to simplify the way we work together you know, we just can't keep fragmenting and assuming that this is all going to naturally come together. Uh, it takes real leadership. If you're in a client organization today and you're trying to manage a brand, and in some cases these clients are managing hundreds of brands, um, you have to have a simplified way of coming together, bringing the right expertise, the right information, and ultimately the right accountability for the investment that you make. And if we're not part of solving that problem, I think we will, we will suffer the consequences. Hmm, I hear consolidation in that, uh, perhaps. Uh, we've got lots more to talk about. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it until next time. John Seifert, thank you so much for joining us. He is worldwide chairman and chief executive of Ogilvy and Mather, which is based in New York. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.